mind? Two terms to know? Positionally, experientially. You're grateful for the mess of information that you're avoiding at this point in time. Moving on. The author of the book of James is God. The writer is James, the brother of Jesus. Insert my joke here. <laughs> time period is between 45 and 50 AD. And it's written to the diaspora, who again are the believing Jews who are scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution that they faced because they accepted Jesus as the Messiah. James deals with one topic, true spirituality, and in doing so he addresses it through four different evidences. Faith in action, self-control, unselfishness, generosity, impartiality, and patience. And then submission to God through prayer in a relationship with him that is dependent upon him and open in communication to him at all times. Through these four evidences, James teaches what is truly what it means to be truly spiritual, and also gives the mechanics for how to actually be truly spiritual. It's very nice of him. Pisteos is the <clears throat> word from which we get faith or belief or trust. Um, it's a feminine noun which means complete dependency based upon a response. And again, it identifies a relationship between two objects. One object is dependent upon the second object um, completely to accomplish some action or for some other thing or purpose, um, i.e. sitting in a chair. The model of humanity, this is what God designed humanity to, this is how God designed humanity to operate in the sense that God is the Father and He initiates and then mankind is underneath Him in the hierarchy of governorship and responds to God. We mess that up when we choose to act like we're God and initiate our own actions and perform our own thoughts and our own will and then we have to repent of our sins and submit back to him. Human viewpoint again is sight based not in the sense of eyesight but in the sense of data that we perceive and bring in through all of our senses and it's a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system. This will tie back in a little bit later with what we're going to call human reality um, human viewpoint and human reality go hand in hand. In order to understand human reality, you're looking at the world from human viewpoint, um, at least through a human viewpoint lens. Whether it's operating and controlling you or not is a different story. Divine viewpoint is quite different. It's faith-based. Continue just a second. Um, and it's a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based upon dependence upon spiritual truth doctrines of God's world system. In other words, it's an internal source of thinking that changes what we see and perceive through human flesh by allowing doctrine of God's world system and the principles of God's world system to control and dictate how we interact and what we see. Question? Uh, I was just going to ask, when you say human reality is seen through human viewpoint, you mean what we see as human reality. Right. Our viewpoint is flawed, right? So what is truly human, the human reality would be... Spiritual reality. Yeah. And that, that way we, we call spiritual reality. reality. Yeah, in the sense that, like, the, the battle in the Old Testament, and I forget who the, the leader was at the time, but God opened his eyes, and he saw what was actually going on around him, and saw the angels fighting, and, and the spiritual warfare going on at the same time, fighting for and against both sides. That would be kind of a spiritual reality concept, where he's also seeing the human side of things, but under a spiritual lens, versus before God opened his eyes, and he wasn't aware, and he said, hey, we're losing this battle, because his forces were being destroyed. Human reality versus spiritual reality. So we'll see both of those tonight, human reality and spiritual reality. Sorry. Yeah, good. So I think, that what, I think what Emily's saying is that even <coughs> our perception of human 
reality is flawed and that God sees humans for what they are. So it's not, right. it's, we may see the same, we just don't understand it. So it's not that we don't see the angels. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, what we would call human reality <coughs> is not actually reality. Right, because there are spiritual principles operating. Not necessarily spiritual forces that we're not seeing. But where we see like a trial in our situation tonight, we'll see that. Where we see a trial saying, this is painful, this is emotional, this is uh, all sorts of stress. We actually, if we look at it from a divine viewpoint concept, we say, hey, this may be painful from a human perspective, but from a divine perspective, this grows me. So you've got spiritual reality versus human reality. We'll develop it, and we've kind of been developing it. You guys are on top of it already, so. Okay. Any more questions? Really? Okay. So I can make up something if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There will be plenty of time for that. Um, trials and tribulation, part 11. Uh, this is actually part 11.1. And apparently I didn't change all the slides to 11.1, but you'll see towards the end that some are changed to 11.1. Verse 12 of James chapter 1 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This could be one of my favorite verses of all the verses in the Bible. The uh, problem with that is that all of them have to be our favorite because they're all the Bible, right? Maybe not. Okay, <clears throat> James begins, begins verse 12 by describing the believer who is successful in implementing trial and tribulation protocol as blessed. This is an adjective, therefore it's used to describe someone with a certain quality. That quality is blessed. Uh, now today, that word is generically and kind of abstractly used of if I would say, oh, bless you, or um, God's going to bless you for doing this, or that kind of thing, we would understand it totally differently than what it actually is employed in, than the meaning that is actually employed in New Testament Greek. Um, our meaning is very subjective. It's based upon what it connects to. Um, if you obey God, you will be blessed. Okay, well, there's a caveat you have to obey. Um, blessed is the, are the peacemakers. Well, okay, we've got to figure out how, how this kind of works. But today, we hear that word bless, um, and it's kind of like the word faith. It's that, oh, if you just have faith, or if you, you, know, if you have faith, you're going to do this or that. And it's kind of just generic and not defined and abstract um, and what we call spiritualized. That's what we're trying to avoid because we're supposed to live off of every specific word that God gives to us through Scripture. <clears throat> so while this word is often used today generically and abstractly, which makes it, its meaning subjective, being dependent upon whatever context it is found within. James, however, doesn't use it this way, and because of that, he is describing the successful believer with clarity. Now, I use that term successful believer to identify a believer who is in, successful in implementing trial and tribulation protocol. Make sense? So, trials come up, he's implemented trial and tribulation protocol, he's gone through the process, the trial is gone, the spiritual maturity, the spiritual growth has been developed, he has been successful in that trial. That's what we mean by a successful believer. <clears throat> James uses the Koine Greek word makarios, and this word refers to the possession of inner happinesses by an individual. That's not a typo, it is plural. This word refers to the possession of inner happinesses by an individual. The inner happiness is the result of circumstances in which the individual finds himself. How we relate to our circumstances defines whether we are happy or not. Notice I did not say that our circumstances define how we are happy or not. 
This is blessed. Yeah, in English, this is, they translate this word blessed. James actually says, inner happinesses belong to the man who perseveres under trial. <clears throat> this inner happiness, makarios, is the result of circumstances in which the individual finds himself. <clears throat> now, there are two types of circumstances in which humanity can be found. Here we go. Human circumstances, which we kind of refer to as physical reality or human reality, are those circumstances which are human in nature. If you don't have a spirit, if you're operating out of soul or carnally or fleshly, you're going to see things from the soul or the human um, viewpoint concept. In other words, we have a trial before us. That trial is painful, it's emotional, it's stressful, all these things. We're going to be seeing those things and not recognizing the spiritual circumstances or that the spiritual reality behind it that we can grow. Okay? So spiritual circumstances as opposed to human circumstances are those circumstances which are spiritual in nature. Now, true human and true humanity would, would include and preclude this concept of spiritual reality. So these aren't two different, they're two different systems, but they're not, you can have one on top of the other, okay? But it has to be spiritual on top of physical. So the spiritual reality actually, it's kind of like our anatomy of the human, um, our anatomy of humanity in the sense that the body and soul are one. The soul uh, controls the body, and then the spirit, once it's born again, has the opportunity to control the soul and the body. So it's kind of a layering effect. That's the concept here. Spiritual reality actually layers upon physical or human reality. Okay? Without the spirit, spirit, we can't understand spiritual reality. Therefore, all we're left with is physical human reality. So we will be sight-based in our thought process and like, living under um, human viewpoint. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Um, physical reality of a believer under, undergoing a trial. Just as an example and elaboration. Number one, physical pain, emotional pain, stress. Number two, physical loss. Three, suffering. Four, desiring removal from the situation um, and of the situation. And then five, com complaints, whining, and seeking human advice. A human undergoing a trial is going to have these kind of viewpoints towards it. The trial's dumb. It's painful. It hurts. Um, which is humanly and totally true. But on their, a spiritual reality of a believer undergoing a trial, while all those things are true, the viewpoint changes from this is a test of spiritual development, or from the, hum, the human viewpoint painful concept to the understand that this is a test of spiritual development, an opportunity to discipline oneself to trust God, an opportunity to implement Bible doctrine having already been learned, and development of spiritual maturity with the ability to remain joyful because of God's promises. So you can clearly see the two different viewpoints of a trial that have been already established in what we've studied so far. <coughs> Excuse me. What James is going to be bringing up here is this concept that we have human reality and spirit reality. Spirit reality is supposed to lay on top of human reality and change the way we view our actual reality. The circumstance, the trial, doesn't have to change for us to view it differently. When we're operating from a spiritual concept or a spiritual divine viewpoint uh, operational process, then we are actually going to see the, the trial as different. Doesn't mean it won't hurt, but the pain's not going to be the focus. Okay, because in reality, these things do hurt. But when we understand what they're designed to do, it actually allows us to be able to maintain joy. <clears throat> Makarios is used to refer to happiness based on spiritual realities rather than human realities. 
Now, go back a couple slides here. Notice that it says this word refers to the possession of inner happiness by an individual, and this inner happiness is the result of circumstances in which the individual finds himself. Okay, now we come back to this paragraph. Makaros is used to refer to happiness based on spiritual realities rather than human realities. When this word is used, it is almost always, and I would say arguably always, used with a spiritual mindset employed. In the sense that, um, like we talked about a couple weeks back with the, the rich man. Why can the rich man humble about, or be, be proud about his humble position? Well, because he recognizes the spiritual concept is that he has to depend upon God rather than his own resources in order to successfully navigate the trial and grow spiritually. That ability, and that, that's kind of an example of how Makarios is used, is it's always used with these spiritual concepts rather than a human viewpoint concept. Does that make sense? It's, it's predominantly, and I'm going to say always, but there may be a situation where you could argue successfully, not necessarily correctly, for that to be not the case. Um, but in all the, I think there's 171 usages I looked at, in all of them, there was a spiritual concept employed. Um, and it was always that there's an inner happiness based upon choosing to believe a spiritual concept versus a human concept, or the happiness was the result of a true, a spiritual reality that was being imposed on a human situation. So Makaros is a very is very much a term that refers to how you relate to things in the spirit versus in the soul, or in in, in the control of the Holy Spirit versus under the control of your flesh and your soul. Questions? <coughs> okay, Makaros is a masculine adjective, which again an adjective is describing a noun, and the masculine part identifies that the inner happiness of the spirit is based on initiation. So when we talk about blessedness or Makaros or inner happiness, we're talking about a believer who is operating in submission to God under the control of the Holy Spirit, which is controlling his human spirit. James 5.17 says, be saturated to the point of control and the concept by, by the Holy Spirit, the concept is the Holy Spirit has now filled you, he's already indwelling you, but the filling, that word filling means saturated to the point of control, um, and now he takes over your direction using you just like he used the personality of the writers of each of the different books and that's expressed clearly throughout the uh, canon of scripture. So the karyos, when we use it, we're dealing with a believer operating from his human spirit under the control and in relationship with the Holy Spirit in the proper model of humanity and God initiating and him responding. Does that make sense? That's critical for where we're going. That's why I keep hounding on it. Okay. Koine Greek uses gender to identify relationship correlations rather than biological construction. In other words, it talks about how nouns and adjectives relate to each other versus whether they're male or female. Okay, masculine gender identifies this thing, which is the uh, inner happiness, is based on initiation. That means <clears throat> that something has to occur for that inner happiness to actually exist. Okay, the existence of that inner happiness is based upon initiation of something by someone. <coughs> the believer initiates inner happiness when he operates in a proper relationship with God, operating from divine viewpoint and focusing on spiritual realities rather than the human realities of human viewpoint mindset. James uses this adjective, makarios, to describe the man who perseveres under trial 
as possessing inner happiness based on initiation. Why does he possess inner happiness? Because he initiated the inner, the, his possession of inner happiness by using and implementing trial and tribulation protocol to go through his trial. Had he not done that, inner happiness would not have been initiated. You have a similar statement that says, Blessed is, um, I've lost the verse, but it refers to a, a person who undergoes trials and, not trials and tribulation, but um, temptation. It says, Blessed is the one that makes it through successfully and overcomes the temptation because he, I forget the verse. If you know the verse, fill in the, fill in the gaps. Now that I've royally messed this up, let me go back and we'll find oh, it and fix it. First Corinthians ten thirteen. Actually, I don't think that's it. Crazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Drives me crazy, I tell you. I'm sorry. Okay. I don't think so. No, I'm just making it that awkward on purpose. <coughs> okay. There's there's a doctrine that talks about when we actually go through the um, temptation, the process of temptation, that when we choose not to succumb to temptation, that we have this inner happiness. And that we have the inner happiness because we chose uh, spiritual reality or spiritual viewpoint over human viewpoint or, dev or physical reality. That's the verse I was trying to get to. I verse can't. 2. Verse 2? Yeah. James 1, 2? Yeah. No, we're talking, about, we're talking about temptation, not trials and tribulation. Oh, temptation. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can remember the verse at some point, but at this point it's a distraction from our present study. So we'll just continue on. Um, now, as an adjective, James is using makarios to describe the believer who is operating from his spirit and is persevering under his trials successfully to be possessing inner happiness. Now we're back on track. Let's see if we can do this again. Anerhas hupamanai. Oh, it sounds good to me. Aner is the same word and the same form of word which we had in verse 8 when James discussed the two-souled man. You remember verse 8 says, that, or coming off of verse 7, that <coughs> the two-souled man should not expect to receive anything from God because, or the doubting man should not expect to receive anything from God because he is actually two-souled operating as a human with a spirit but attempting to understand spiritual things from a soul concept. Um, two-souled is from the word dipsukos, which literally means two-souled. Um, it's called a double-minded man, or translated as a double-minded man in most translations. Um, but we're not talking about the noose here, we're talking about the suke, which is the soul. And it's referencing a believer who is looking at spiritual things from a human perspective and attempting to e interpret and evaluate those things. Okay, now aner is the same word that is used in verse 8. Not for the two-souled part, but where it says man. Okay, so it's a two-souled man in verse 8, or a double-minded man. But when we studied that, we said that aner is a masculine noun 
meaning man, and it's in the sense of mankind or humanity. It's not in the body form of a man. Um, it refers specifically to mankind or humankind or humanity. So because of this, we know that the reference includes both male and female believers. Human is actually a very good proper literal rendering of aner. Now that's in this context. We have aner used and offset with ganaika, which is the word for female. So we've got male and female in that sense. But here we have man, it's used in the generic in its most base form. And so we know that it's referring to both male and female humans. And our context specifically with James talking to Jewish believers with male and female believers. James identifies that human, the one who perseveres, as Haas Hupomenai. Haas is a relative pronoun, which means the one, and it, it's a it, there's a lot of linguistic and etymological studies that can be done, but really Haas is the same word as the definite article, the. Um, the, the use of Haas as a relative pronoun is to identify the one who, which, what, or that. Um, and the concept is that it's the one who does this, the one which is this, the one what is it, the one that, or yeah, the one that did this. So it, it's translated either as who, what, which, or that typically, but it's most effectively rendered the one who, the one which, depending upon the rest of the context. Now here, it's referencing a person, and that's where we get the concept of who, who from it. So we're it should be translated as the one who. So we're talking about the man, the one who. Which man is it? The one who perseveres. Um, and in that sense, and in that example, you just saw that it was used to place emphasis on aner, which is actually the noun it's being substituted for. Now it's a pronoun. Pronouns take the place of nouns so that you don't have to say the noun again. If we said, blessed is the man, the man who perseveres, that would work. But it gets a little monotonous if you have that the whole way through. So they use pronouns to break that up. So we have blessed is the man. Which man? The one who perseveres. Hupamani is an active verb, which means remain under. We've seen this before. Um, in verse 2, 3, 4, this is our, our told concept is that we are under the current influence of a trial or a tribulation. And in that sense, it hangs over our head. It's controlling the situation. Our job is to remain underneath it, not allowing it to affect us negatively, but allowing through faith rest technique or the opportunity to, to depend upon God and rest upon him and his bio doctrine to actually go through that trial underneath its sphere of influence. In the current context, as an active verb, this hupamani refers to the human who performs the action to remain underneath the influence of a trial. Now remember, a human reality would say, let's get out of this trial. I don't want to go through it. I just want the pain to go away. I want out of this. I don't care about growing. I don't care about doing any of this stuff. I just I don't like it. Let's get out of here. Spiritual viewpoint would identify we need to go through the trial, experience the pain, but we need to do it in a way that is resting in faith and complete dependency upon God so that the spiritual maturity and the trial actually serves its purpose to spiritually grow us. As an active voice verb, Hupamani identifies the subject on air is the one who performs the action to remain under. Therefore, we have the phrase on air has hupamani pyrosmon. On air has hupamani literally means the man or man, the one who remains under. Pyrosmon is our word for trial, so it's the man, it's man, the one who remains under trial. 
Hupamanai is an active verb, and literally it means performs the action to remain under. So the ability to remain underneath the influence of a trial is a result of complete dependence upon God and His Word, which cultivates spiritual growth. And we can cross-reference that with James 1, 2 through 4. That's the first part of what we've learned about the doctrines of trials and tribulations. Question. Um, one thing that you described as a characteristic of the human viewpoint was that desire for it to go away, to say that this, like, I want this to go away. Um, so how do you factor into that Christ saying, if it's possible, please take this cup from me? Because he was asking that it go away, now, even though he knew the purpose. And that was his human viewpoint. His human viewpoint was, I want this to go away. But what did he say? If it's possible, Father, have this cup pass from me. But even still, do your will, not my own. So his human will was, get rid of this. I don't want this. And there's nothing sinful about it when you just have the desire. Remember, it's not the desire that you have. Some desires are sinful, but it's usually because they lead to action. So the human <coughs> viewpoint is not necessarily sinful, because you described it as like, <coughs> by the flesh, which I wouldn't... <coughs> yeah, it's just... not necessarily... If you're... If you're carnal or being ruled by the flesh, you are using human viewpoint. But remember, it's a layering effect. So under the control of the Holy Spirit and your human spirit controlling your body, you don't not see human viewpoint, you just see it differently. So like your example with Jesus, he, his understanding was that this is for a purpose. And so he was seeing the spiritual reality that he has to have this cup remain on him for the spiritual purpose to be accomplished. And that's why he says, humanly, get rid of this, but spiritually, keep it on here, because I know this is what you've got your will to do. And so his desire to not have that cup wasn't Wait, was that? It's not wrong. It wasn't wrong for him to have the desire. No. No, and it's, and it's not wrong for us to say, Father, get rid of this trial. It's wrong for us to say, Father, get rid of this trial, and not have the concept or understand that this yeah. trial, whether he gets rid of it or not, is designed to grow us. If we throw a fit because he didn't get rid of it, now we've got a problem, right? And again, the desire isn't the problem. It was what we did with our desire or after our desire. Our job is to express what we want humanly to God in control and under the control of the Holy Spirit so that then it's up to him to either do or not do. And we're fine with that, and we better be. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> Great question. All right. The ability to remain underneath the influence of a trial is the result of complete dependence upon God and his word, which cultivates spiritual growth. In other words, Jesus in the garden was remaining under complete dependence upon God and his word, knowing that this is what he needed to do, and therefore spiritual growth occurred. Can God's son grow spiritually? There you go. Yes, he can. Why? Because he's a human on earth growing spiritually, and he already got rid or laid aside of his rights and roles of a of God. It's a very interesting thing when we kind of harmonize this human Jesus with God the Son, Messiah, together as God and man. It's a very interesting thing. <clears throat> now remember, pyros pyrosmon is a trial. It's the word translated as trial. And it's something which attempts to learn the character or nature of something through evaluation. We dealt with the concept of gold being refined um, and being melted down and all the different things taken out of it. That's a trial for gold. Gold is tried by fire. <coughs> so when they translate the English word, or the English, when they translate into English parosmon, they translate it as trial, but it's in that sense of something which is trying something else in an attempt to learn its character or nature, to evaluate it and find out whether it's real, fake, counterfeit, mixed, alloyed, whatever. This is from the Greek word pyrosmon, which again, 
refers to a trial or something which is attempting to understand or learn this, the nature or character of someone or something. So and to put this all together real quick, James is say, declaring that the man who performs the action to remain underneath the influence of a trial is a man who possesses inner happiness. Blessed is, inner happiness is belonged to the man who perseveres under trial. <clears throat> that man is a man who is innerly happy. Inner merriment, if you will. Yeah, happiness is, it just makes you happy, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it does, really does. <laughs> Humanly, this makes no sense. That a person could go through a trial and be happy. Happy, happy. For those of you who watch Duck Dynasty. But, divine viewpoint, none of you do. It's okay. <clears throat> I do, it's hilarious. It's a funny joke, just start laughing. <clears throat> so humanly, this doesn't make any sense. Apparently much like my reference to Duck Dynasty. <laughs> but divine viewpoint declares otherwise in the sense that you can go through a trial and remain happy because you know that it's developing spiritual growth. And if you're dependent upon God, you're actually going to be doing what God's plan for you is. Because this doesn't make much sense humanly, James continues on to give us the cause, give us, give us the reason behind it. Hati dakamas genomenos. Any of those words sound familiar? Hey, someone picked up on it. Hati is a causal conjunction, which is used to explain the cause behind a statement to which it is connected. Okay, conjunctions connect two thoughts, two words, thoughts, or phrases, or what I call constructs, an arrangement of words that isn't necessarily a clause or a sentence, or even a complete thought, but it's just a phrase or something that you can use to express a thought. I don't really want to repeat that because I don't know that I can. <coughs> so... So, uh, conjunctions connect two things together, okay? Just think of it like when the trains come together, there's that little coupler in the middle. Think of that as the conjunction, and the two trains as two different parts of the sentence or of the, the whole thought. What's that? The coupler? No. I believe it's called a coupler. Okay, so conjunctions conjunctions then link the original statement with the cause or reason for the original statement. Now, <clears throat> with this being a causal conjunction, that's the part about the cause and the reason. It's identifying the reason or the cause for which the, the original statement is valid. So that we have the original statement that blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Okay? And humanly, we said this doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> but the cause which validates or makes this make sense is that once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. So we know, and we're being told by James, that the man who perseveres under trial is blessed because once he's approved, he receives the crown of life. So now we have the sense. The second statement validates the original statement that blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. A little bit of syntax here. We're just dealing with it. Hati is what connects the original statement with the second statement. Syntax refers to the structure of the words and the way they relate and respond to each other in the sentence. <coughs> so being a causal conjunction, it connects and validates the original statement with this by the second statement. Hati dokamas genomenos. 
that word for again connecting to two leads us to the phrase dokamas genomenos. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a critical part of the believer's life, which does need some explanation. Um, and the, this dokamas genomenos is the process of spiritual maturity. Okay, this, this that's what it's referring to. You should see that by the time we get out of this two-word phrase. Um, it's been translated as once he has been approved. <coughs> I understand why they did that. Uh, I just think we're missing some of the meaning behind it, and we're going to try and wrestle the meaning out of it and move it back to a place where we where it's properly understood. But to do so, we actually have to switch the English words to their proper Greek orientation. Originally, in that sentence, I said we have to switch the Greek words to the English words. Well, that's incorrect. We should always go English to Greek, not Greek to English. Make sense? So instead of changing what the Greek says, we change what the English says. Just a translational thing. So if you notice, on this slide we have dokamos genomenos, and it's once he has been approved. On this slide we have dokamos genomenos, approved once he has been. So the English arrangement <coughs> doesn't correspond with the Greek arrangement. Now, <coughs> by switching these two, we now actually make it not make as much sense in English, which makes sense because we're talking about Greek, not English, right? So, hati dokamos genomenos literally in, in English is for approved once he has been. And again, that doesn't make much sense in English, so we need to figure this out. Um, now the reason that they did all this switching in the English, even though the Greek order is different, is because of that word genomenos. It's a word from which we derive our namesake as a college group, genomai. Um, we're all familiar with hearing that word. And genomai again means becoming into a state of existence through transition from one state into another. State of existence of our theme verse of unrighteousness to righteousness. Two different states totally independent of each other um, and totally mutually exclusive. Mutually inexclusive? Yeah. Genomenos was translated as once he has been, but <clears throat> since genomenos is from genomai, it shares genomai's same definition. So we should, instead of just, we should see in this phrase, once, <coughs> excuse me, for becoming into a state of existence through transition from one state into another, approved, that's not going to make sense, don't worry about it, we should see the definition of genomai coming through genomenos. Now, instead of just being a verb, genomenos is actually a participle. Okay, this is where we start getting technical, this is where we start getting weird. Um, <clears throat> genomenos as a participle means then that this is an action by which an individual is described. So the action of becoming into a state of being uh, through transition from one state into another is actually describing a person or an individual in that action. So it's a person who is doing the action and being described by that action that they're doing. Okay, We're believing in the Messiah that was. Okay, That's what we are doing. If we are identified as the believing ones or the believing, that's the participle concept. We're, we have an action that we're doing that is now describing who we are. Okay, <clears throat> It doesn't make a lot of sense in English because we have to add that word one or people, or men, or women, or whatever we're talking about at the end, but as a participle, it actually acts as a substantive, meaning that it becomes our subject, in essence. 
or something upon which we can build a sentence. So gain menos is a participle and therefore an action by which an individual is described. So our man on there, our believer, who has persevered and remained under these trials, actually is being defined as being able to or as being blessed because of this action of becoming from one state into another. Make sense? Okay, we're building on it. Keep going. Here's a little bit about participles. Participles in Greek are hybrids comprised of both adjectival qualities and verbal qualities. Taken, it originally was an adjective, but then they mixed in the, a verb with it. Okay, when they did that, it picked up some of the parts of the Greek verb and some and maintained parts of the Greek adjective. So, with this being the case, participles are defined as verbal adjectives. They're descriptors that are describing based upon an action being performed. Uh, in other words, they're adjectives which define or describe a subject based upon an action the subject is being uh, or a subject is performing or being performed upon. They're often used without a noun, therefore substantively, but they can cause confusion to the English reader who looks for a subject or a noun in the form or looks for a subject in the form of a noun. We may not look for a subject, but we are looking for something to kind of help understand, like the believing ones. Who are you talking about? The believing. Well, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, we can see it, we can make it make sense. But if you really want to spell it out, you'd say the believing ones. <clears throat> now, participles are great. Okay, They teach us so much uh, when you look at them. From the participle, we, can, we as Bible students can ascertain the order of actions given in a text. In other words, we can see when this action that's describing the person occurs in relationship to something else. Another action that's occurring, or the main action. We also see principles of operation, or what I call spiritual laws, that God says, this is how this world operates. This is how my world operates, cosmos theos. So when God sets up his kingdom, he's got his throne room, and then he creates the earth, and then he arguably casts Satan down to it, and he arguably recreates it, and then, just arguably because a lot of other people disagree with it, <clears throat> and then we have this whole history of humanity, and then we have what's coming with the rapture, and then the tribulation, and then the, the millennium reign, and then eternity future. All these things that God set up operate by different principles, like we have the, uh, the uh, laws of science, right, with gravity and thermodynamics and all those kind of things. They all tell us how this world operates, not what we see, but what's actually occurring with the two different masses joining together, coming together, being attracted together, the larger opposing or imposing more on the, the lesser um, <clears throat> and creating more of a force to draw together. That's our gravity concept. So we learn from participles these principles of operation, these laws, these spiritual laws that operate within God's world system, as well as identify when an action occurs before another action can occur, or at the same time of that action occurring, or after that action occurring. Through this, we actually can understand that you have to believe first prior to obtaining eternal life. And until you obtain eternal life, you do not have a human spirit. So you can actually identify through the participle that the concept that a person has to place their dependency upon God first prior to obtaining a human spirit, which is contrary to the tulip thought process that the human spirit is actually born in the person, and that is then what creates their desire to want to they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's totally contrary to what Scripture identifies. One word destroys the whole thought process, and it's a participle. It's unbelievable the way that God's Word continues to harmonize over and over again in that capacity. <clears throat> Any questions or objections?
which one were you saying <coughs> contrary to God's word? You said it's totally contrary to God's word. Which which of those two philosophies were you saying? The tulip philosophies. The concept that that the spirit is born first and then that and God has to birth the spirit in order for a man to be saved. Now I may have hung myself on that sentence because man does have to have a spirit born to him and it is God who bears that spirit in him and without that spirit he is not saved. It's just the it's just the order. It's the order that is only the only thing different between Calvinism or predestination or and um, free will thought process is the order in which the spirit is born. When you when you argue everything out, that's what it comes down to. <coughs> Excuse me. No, I have some more coffee. Coffee, coffee makes it worse. Coffee dries out your throat and can cause irritation on your vocal cords. You really should drink coffee if you have coffee. I'm sorry. It's my fourth coffee. Like, well, Actually, it really can cause scarring on your vocal cords. <coughs> Dehydrating. Yeah, and I, I'm typically dehydrated by it. I need more, more water as it is. But I did have a water bottle today. It's okay. We'll get through this. <coughs> Thank you, though. No. It's just because you left the room, honey. Honey. When you say they have a human spirit born in them, do you mean that the spirit of God is born in them? If you look at the anatomy of humanity, you have the body, the soul, and spirit in God's original design. At the fall of man, the spirit was killed, the human spirit. Originally, God did not design the Holy Spirit to indwell believers, from what we can see. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a human spirit that is actually what was what's able to understand and correspond with the Holy Spirit and spiritual concepts. At the fall of man, the human spirit died instantly, physical death which is the separation of the soul and the body, was coming in the future. So, and that's from the Hebrew and the, the whole the, all stuff. If you want to, I think it's part, I think it's part seven or part eight of our study actually goes through all this part of it um, and de deals with the first chap few chapters of Genesis in doing so. But what I was referring to is that the human spirit is actually born at the time of salvation. Jesus says a man must be born of water, which is physical birth, and spirit in order to have eternal life. And that's that last part's paraphrased from the rest of the chapter. Okay? That's what it understand what we understand it to be. <coughs> He's referring to a human spirit. The Holy Spirit's not born into us. God says always that the Holy Spirit indwells us. He's not born because now now we have multiple births of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't work. The Holy Spirit's not born. He's an eternal being. He's a part of the Godhead. So we have a human spirit that's actually born in us, and the Holy Spirit actually teaches our human spirit and corresponds and relates to us through our human spirit. Now when we sin, we're out of fellowship with God, we're operating from our soul rather than our spirit. Now we're not understanding the things of God because we're fleshly or carnal-minded. We're operating according to our soul, perceiving things that are spiritual from a human perspective. We have to confess our sin, which now puts us back in fellowship with God, and now allows us to operate from the Spirit until we sin again. Someday we'll get to a study on Romans 12, 1 and 2, which correlates First John, John 1, 9, 1 John 3, 9, Ephesians 1, 1, chapter 1, chapter 2, a whole bunch of these different things. That It's kind of like this master, like all, you could almost start in Romans 12, 1 and 2 and talk about every doctrine of Christianity. It's almost like this one, like, like the Higgs boson, if you want, of, of Christian theology is right there in Romans 12, 1. 
uh, <clears throat> or of believer theology, I guess. Christian theology, you, you go to John 3.16. There you go. <clears throat> so what I was saying is that the human spirit is what's born at the time of salvation. Now, Reformed theology, which is Calvinism and predestination, says that the, the God has to quicken the spirit in the believer to make them want to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Well, the participles of Koine Greek totally suggest that the opposite occurs in the process, that the believer comes to God understand that love is a human concept and that failure is a human concept and that penalty is a human concept and says, I have to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior or, or else I will be judged for my sins. Calvin says they can't even understand that concept unless they have a human spirit born to them. Well, being that it operates from a human understanding of, of failure, of um, repentance, and of punishment coming, we know those concepts humanly. A child says no, what do they, and what does the parent do? Well, they swat them, right? Well, hopefully, in this, in this day and age, they go to jail for that. But, but <clears throat> when most of us were raised, we had that concept that when we did something wrong, we knew something was coming. See, that's a human concept. Whether we're saved or not, whether we have understand that we have to have a Messiah, all that stuff's a human concept and a human understanding. So the process and the order that the Bible defines is that man repents of his sins, says, Jesus, be my Savior, depends upon him for his salvation, and then at that point, he is placed from death into life. The Holy Spirit indwells him. He has this human spirit born to him. Reformed theology says the human spirit is born, and then he accepts Jesus Christ. That's the, all, this different, all these different theologies of free will and predestination they all boil back down to this one little order in which the spirit is born. You prove where that is, you finished everything. It's a done deal. And I think scripture is very clear on it. But that's what a participle can tell you, which was our, our whole point is here. We're not, we're not here to go into reform theology or go into free will theology. That's not our study. Our study today is, is on James. Um, participles, just as a side note, tell us a whole lot of information about when something has to occur. It actually says the believing ones have eternal life. Believing is eris. That means that it has that action has to occur prior to having eternal life. If we have a spirit born to us, we have eternal life. The reason we don't go into heaven is because we lack a spirit. We have to be born of water and spirit in order to enter God's kingdom. So can I ask a question about yes. that? Yes. There are a couple. I don't want to grab it, Chuck, because I sort of want to go into the, okay. the free will predestination because that's interesting. But uh, so, would you say do demons have a spirit? Demons are spirit. So you say, well, we have a spirit that guarantees us eternal life, but demons have a spirit. They're guaranteed eternal life. Nope. Their operation is totally different than ours. But this is spirit, and you're saying a spirit, and that's why, that's why I want to make Without sure. a spirit, we can't enter the, the, the kingdom of God. Okay, But spirits, angels, spirit beings, ha can be judged and are judged by God. They're, they operate differently. As humans, we have to have a spirit. Aren't we all guaranteed eternal life? It's just one place or the other? Yeah. Yeah. Well, not if you understand life is zoas and death is thanatos. So, yeah, the soul is eternal. Okay. It's either up in heaven because it has a spirit with it, or it's in hell for eternity because it doesn't have a spirit. But the demons are hell with, angels, in hell with a spirit. Angels are eternal, right? Yes. No, everlasting. <clears throat> angels had a beginning, just like man had a beginning. God choosing man, a lesser life form, to prove to Satan that he is loving and just. Because Satan says, you're going to put us in hell for forever? That means you're not loving, nor you're just, because you created us with the ability to choose something other than what you wanted. 
So he says, because of that, you're actually not loving and just God. And so God says, fine, I'll create man. I'll make him lesser than life form, who is subject to flesh, subject to space, <laughs> um, slow, less intelligent, less powerful, all these things. And I have this plan for humanity. Satan, you and your angels can go now. You will be judged eternally and placed into hell. Anyone who wants to stay, repent now, or be gone. So we, God deals with us differently than he deals with angels. Being that they are spiritual beings, they existed originally in the throne of God until God cast Satan out and all the, the third that followed him. Now they're set up for judgment later. So as humans, we have to have a spirit in order to get into heaven. Okay, Angels being spiritual beings, that's not their access point. Their access point is obedience to God. And God's actually closed the door on the window for them who have already rebelled, saying, no, at this point, you as spiritual beings will be bound in eternity and in, in judgment in like a fire. So, and to, to sum it up, he deals with us differently than he deals with them. And for us, a spirit has to exist in order for us to have an understanding of what God wants from us and understanding uh, of an ability to relate to him. Angels can relate to God still. Demons, they can still relate to God. They still understand that someday they're going to be judged forever. They still understand all these things. <clears throat> exactly. Right. So, where we, without that, we would, without a spirit, we wouldn't understand who God is. We would understand, okay, there's this, this, this God that created things. Because we understand the process of creation, the process that something has to come from something. You can't have something coming from nothing, because that's until nothing. We understand these kind of concepts, because they're all what? Philosophy. Philo, thought process of humanity. That's what it comes down to. Does that answer your question, kind of? Some. I, I, I don't know that I want to pull you on around. I, I, I don't think I'm going to ask this out with you at some point, so I don't, okay. but I don't know that now is the time for Okay, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I started the rabbit trail, so <clears throat> I'm going to end it. No. Um, all right, so participles. Back in James, remember if we're talking about book written in 4550 AD, Diaspora. Okay, get a mindset back on there. We're still <clears throat> <laughs> All right, back to slide one. No, all right. <clears throat> okay, Ganymenos is an aorist middle participle. This identifies the subject of the participle, which is oner, the man from the original statement, blessed is the man who perseveres in a trial, that man, as participating in the action of becoming into existence through transition from one state into another in a point in time. Okay, now you see our actual definition there of becoming into existence through transition from, from one state to another. Okay, the parts that we added was the participating in the action of becoming, and then the last part, in a point in time. That's the aorist middle. Okay, tense in Koine Greek, the aorist tense, uh, because there are so many of them, we don't actually have them all listed, but the aorist tense, simply described, identifies an action which occurs or occurred in a point in time. Okay, think Polaroid snapshot here. The concept is that there's this action, and it's a snapshot of that action on the timeline. Okay, now the, the snapshot we have that's being referred to here is actually the life of a believer. That's one snapshot on the timeline. So all the things that occur within that time is the point in time that's being referred to here. The point in time in which that believer lived. That's one big timeline. <clears throat> Genomenos is an aorist tense participle, which means becoming into existence through transition from one state into another in a point in time. So that action will occur and is a type of action that is a snapshot in a point in time. Middle voice, number two on the list, is that identifies that the subject on air participates in the action. 
our man who is blessed because he perseveres under trials and tribulation is participating because of the middle voice in this action of becoming into existence through transition from one state into another. So he participates, we participate when we actually implement successfully trial and tribulation protocol during trials to change from one state to another. Okay. Now <clears throat> we're going to get to what actually occurs and what what's coming next week. This is the last word we're going to be dealing with this week, so we're going to kind of leave you hanging a little bit. But <clears throat> when we put it all together, apparently I put tens in there twice. When we put it all together, we understand that Genomenos is one participating or someone participating in the action of becoming into existence through transition from one state into another in a point in time as a matter of principle. I remember when I defined participles, I said that they identify principles or spiritual laws, spiritual things that operate and are constants in God's world system. That's that part as a matter of principle. This believer who is operating this way of becoming from one state into another state is doing so as a matter of principle. The principle being, the spiritual law that operates being that when we choose to put in and to implement trial and tribulation protocol, we actually are enacting the spiritual law that our implementation of trial and tribulation protocol produces spiritual growth for us. That's a law of operation in God's world system. When we do this, this is what happens. When we don't do this, that means that it doesn't happen. <coughs> it's as strong as like the law of gravity for us in humanity. It's This is how God's world system works. When we trust him, he works. When we don't trust him, he doesn't work. Answer. It's terribly sorry, but what part in English, what part of the verse are we in? I got a, we're looking at it so close, I got a little bit lost. And it, this, is, this is why they switched the words up, because it, it does get a little lost. Um, this is the part where it says, for once he has been approved. Um, and we're looking at specifically that once he has been part. That's no problem. <clears throat> so the point in time refers to the totality of the believer on earth. So from the time that he is born again, not born, but born again until the time that he leaves the earth, either through physical death or through the rapture, that's the point in time like one big dot, one big pencil, that's the point in time that's being referred to here. The process of the believer undergoing spiritual development on earth. Okay, hang in there. We're almost through here. That's all viewed in one snapshot. <clears throat> now, when we couple Ganymenos with Dokamos, we arrive at some harmony regarding what the believer becomes during his spiritual development. This is kind of the missing piece. We've got this, he becomes into a state of existence. What does he become? Dokomos means approved, and it actually identifies <coughs> excuse me, it actually identifies a process that after trying something to learn its character, it actually produces a genuine object rather than a counterfeit or alloyed object. James is identifying a human was participating in the action of becoming into a state of existence, genuine or real, as a result of testing, through transition from one state, which we know to be unrighteousness, into another state, righteousness, or righteous, as a matter of principle. So what we've done here, and I'll repeat this again, is that we've actually combined dokamas and genemenos, so that we know, so that we see what's actually happening. The believer is becoming genuine. And he's doing that as a result of testing. 
Now, this transition process that we have as believers on earth is from unrighteousness into righteousness. The way we change from unrighteousness to righteousness is by implementing God's truth in our lives. Applying God's word to your life is the way we would say it today. Precisely. Yes, we're talking about experiential righteousness, which is that spiritual maturity, versus positional righteousness, which is the righteousness we have because of our position in Christ. That Ephesians 1.3 says is holy and blameless, approved, um, stamped by God as saying this is already perfect and genuine. So sanctification versus justification. Precisely. <clears throat> yeah, sanctification versus justification. Good question. So James is describing a living believer who is operating in harmony with God's design for spiritual growth. So in other words, God says, this is how you grow spiritually. And the believer is saying, okay, that's how I'm going to do it then. Rather than, nope, I'm going to go buy my way out of this trial. I'm going to go do this, do that, whatever. Uh, I'm God, you're not God. We're going to take care of this my own way. This is a believer who's operating in harmony or in fellowship with God's plan and design for spiritual growth. This is also a believer who is resting in faith, because this is God's plan, upon God and his word, being dependent upon God for guidance in every moment within the proper model of humanity, which Jesus modeled during his time on earth. There's one thing that we forget as humans, and the fact is that we forget that we are not God. For some reason, we use our volition, you'll, you'll get the parsing done in just a second, we use our volition, our free will, and we have it, and we assume that because we have it, we can determine, as humans with free will, what we want to do. We are sovereign of ourselves, is the way we view it. But the reality of it is, no, we're not sovereign of ourselves. We're either controlled by our flesh, or controlled by something else, and it should be the Holy Spirit. And if it's not, then we're being controlled by the flesh. You've got those two choices. Vote for me. Um, <laughs> David summed it up this way when he penned Psalm 46.10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. New American Standard actually says, Cease striving, in italics. It actually says, Cease and know that I am God. It's not saying stop doing anything and just think about how great God is. What it's saying is recognize that you're not God and I am. This is where it all begins. If you look at Romans 1, 17 and 18 and following which is a great passage to look at during this election time period because we can understand where sin, sin comes from and where homosexual lifestyle comes from, is the recognition that a person is serving himself and identifying himself as God rather than worshiping God as God. Now when I say worshiping God as God, I mean placing God in the esteem of his sovereign position. Meaning that God is the one who makes decisions, God has a plan, it is righteous, and our job is to follow it. But what we do, oftentimes, and what we're told and commanded not to do, is say, I can decide what time I wake up tomorrow. I can decide what, what I do during my day. I can decide when I get done all these things I need to get done. I can decide what I need to get done. And you've got be, to be careful, because you can get to the point where you're actually deciding for yourself all these things that you think you're letting God decide for you. Apparently, we understand that concept. <laughs> By the look on my wife's face. This concept of being still and knowing that God is God is this concept of stopping the placement of ourselves 
as God because we have free will and ability to make our own decision and letting God have his rightful place sovereign over us where he says do this and you do it now what do we do in the meantime and that's where that's where you get that kind of faith buster concept because we believe well we're still supposed to be doing all these things right God's still got all these things for us to do and he does but our job is still to submit to him and when we do he leads us so how do you transition from you leading you to God leading you it doesn't say worry about that it says be still stop leading yourself and let me lead you I can guarantee that 1 John 1 9 has got to be a part of that in other words confessing your sin of leading yourself and deciding for yourself what you're doing in your day and letting God take over that. You can also see Philippians 2, 5-7, which says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be made equal with God, but <coughs> laid aside his natural rights and privileges as God, and submitted to human flesh and his servanthood with God, basically. The last little part there, verse 7, was kind of butchered. The concept was that God, Jesus... When he was on earth, decided, you know, I, I'm God, but I'm not going to use what I, who I am as God. I'm going to operate as a human, submit myself to God, the Father. Um, if you look at Luke 9.23, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, that's identifying your death, and follow me. John 5.30 um, talks about Jesus saying, I do nothing on my own initiation, but I, what I hear, I judge, I evaluate whether it's good or bad, and then I act accordingly. And then John 8.28, where Jesus says, I've done nothing of my own initiative, but what the Father has given me, that I have done. This is all that same concept of the model of humanity. We are supposed to be, in every second of the day, submitted to God. Meaning we're not making decisions for ourselves. Not even the decision to submit to God. Follow that? Because this is where we get lost. If we're so focused on, okay, I'm submitting to God, I'm submitting to God, I'm submitting to God, who's in control? We are. Our job is to rest upon him let him direct it what goes on in our life and i can tell you this if we're focusing on submit to god submit to god submit to, submit to god we're not being still and we're doing it on our own it's something that you know i think we're so far away because it's so ingrained in us as humans to i've got to do this i've got to do this i've got to do this and god wants me to be loving and god wants all this and god's supposed to do that through you it's not our job to do it on our own it's our job to be submitted to him and let him do it. And when we make that change, that's what affects life. That's when we have the inner happiness. That's when we have peace past all understanding. You can go through the rest of Galatians if you want. <coughs> but how do we make the flip? And how do we operate in that moment that we're waiting for God to say, okay, it's my turn, let's do this. How do we operate in that moment? That's the hard part to figure out. This individual whom James identifies is participating in the action of becoming genuine, real, as a result of testing, and he will be participating in something else in the future because of what he's doing at this present time. In other words, him being identified as doing this right now means something for him in the future. And that's where part two is going to come in next week. We'll get a little more of this review. We'll kind of smooth it out a little bit and transition in. But what we'll see, and there's the teaser, is that this individual who is becoming genuine through testing is actually participating in the action to take hold of the Stephanos crown of life, Zoe's, 
which is his because of his stewardship and a rela relaxed mental attitude on earth, having a faith in God. Now, relaxed mental attitude is re faith rest technique, depending upon God. It relaxes your mental attitude. That's where we're going. Dun, dun, dun. This study will be continued at a later point in Trials and Tribulation, part 11.2.